second full-time job in New York, I worked at a member-based arts facility. It had a wood shop, a metal shop, photo studios, computer lab, all the fun stuff. We also offered classes, which was my job. I was the director of education. I hired all the instructors. I planned the subject offerings, managed the materials, etc., etc. I bring this up only as context for the fact that we had a lot of people who needed things from us. It was a big place, lots of people coming through, lots of phone calls. So even though we were a small operation with a staff of like seven people, we had a 30,000 square foot facility with five departments. So we got a fancy phone system to handle and direct all of the incoming calls. We eventually figured out that the system let you import your own MP3 for the hold music. So my boss chose Sweet Charity, the opening track to Mr. Bungle's third record, California. Which, I mean, until you get into the weird bossa nova interludes and melodramatic film music tropes in the bridge... plays pretty well as hold music. It's calming, but not boring. It's interesting, but not distracting. And I think given that this place, which is long since dead, was in Bushwick, Brooklyn at the height of the hipster golden age, or the hipster dark ages, depending upon your perspective, Mr. Bungle was also an effectively obscure reference. And people would joke about it when they got off of hold. And I think it even improved their mood a little. I don't know how purposefully my boss chose Sweet Charity. Did he know that it was going to work this well? Or did he just think it was funny? Maybe it was one of his favorite songs. I never asked, but I still think about that hold music. And that's what this episode of Reasonably Sound is about. Not Sweet Charity, but hold music. Why we have it and how it works. Hold music is an artifact at the intersection of two particular anxieties. The first is held by consumers who want their interactions with service providers to be efficient. The second is held by service providers like banks, cable companies, hospitals, insurance companies, etc., who have to deal with lots of consumers and so occasionally need those people to wait their turn. In ideal circumstances, that wait doesn't impact anyone's opinion of the brand, thus costing future business. So, in a way, the base level of both of these anxieties is cost-related. Consumers don't want to have to pay with their time or emotional investment by waiting, and businesses don't want consumers upset and taking their business elsewhere because they've had to wait. Herein lies the fundamental purpose of hold music. To make you less mad while you wait, so you keep giving up your time, your energy, and your money. But embedded within hold music as an area of interest and a topic of significant research, yeah, significant, we're going to get to some of it, there are some great lessons about the human perception of time and how that perception can be thwarted by clever folks armed with the right tunes. We're going to get into the philosophy and psychology towards the end of this episode. First, a brief history of hold music, and a comparison to its similarly mundane brethren, Muzak.
Alfred Levy, or perhaps Levy, a, quote, entrepreneur, factory owner, and inventor, had a problem. In the late 50s, maybe early 60s, people who called his factory and were placed on hold were mysteriously subjected to the broadcast of a nearby radio station. The culprit, Levy found out, was a stray wire, which, in contact with the structural elements of his factory, turned the whole building into a receiver and somehow piped the signal it was receiving into his phone lines. Ever the, quote, entrepreneur, factory owner, and inventor, Levy saw an opportunity. What if one were to subject their calling customers to music on purpose? In 1962, he filed a patent for the Telephone Hold Program System, the first of its kind. The patent is a delight to read. I'm going to put a link in the episode notes at reasonablysound.com along with all of the sources for this episode if you want to check it out. And you should. I'm not kidding. It is a delight. Um, But the relevant passage starts like this. During the time that an incoming call is being held in the above-described fashion, the originator of the call, the incoming caller, hears no sound in the earpiece of his telephone instrument. Insofar as he is concerned, he is connected to a dead line. This is often disturbing or exasperating because a busy concern sometimes, and not infrequently, will defer, i.e. hold incoming calls for considerable lengths of time. So long, indeed, that the originator of the call is often led to believe that his connection has been broken or that his call has been forgotten or that something has gone wrong with the... Uh, He goes on like this for quite a bit, describing how frustrating it is for operators to be harangued by countless callers and how exasperating it can be to have to be on hold on a dead line. What to do in this situation? The patent continues. It is an object of the present invention to provide a system of the character described which, upon actuation of a hold instrumentality, e.g. a key or button, will connect the incoming call to a source of program material, e.g. music, thereby to pacify the originator of the call if the delay becomes unduly long, and also to while away the idle time of the caller who is awaiting connection to a certain party or extension. And so was birthed an entire industry for music on hold. Now, it is possible and attractive to draw similarities between hold music and Muzak with a Z and a K, the stereotypically dull, largely instrumental audio wallpaper you may hear in a doctor's office. You may consider this and hold music to be one in the same, or two versions of the same thing. I want to make the case that they're different, and that those differences are instructive. Muzak is a brand that became a generalized product description. Like Kleenex, Coke, and Band-Aid, Muzak names both a company, Muzak Holdings Incorporated, now a subsidiary of Mood Media, and that company's product, background music for physical spaces. You know what I'm talking about. This stuff. George Owen Squire was the inventor of Muzak. A major general in the U.S. Army with a Ph.D. from Johns Hopkins, Squire was a real electronics whiz. He's credited first and foremost with the invention of telephone carrier multiplexing, which makes it possible to send multiple signals over one telephone line. 
Building on this innovation, Squire was involved in the creation of Wired Radio Incorporated in 1922, a subscription service where people could pay to have music piped into their homes over, you guessed it, wires. He renamed the service Muzak in 1934, taking naming inspiration from camera manufacturer Kodak. In the late 30s and under new management, Muzak transitioned from an at-home service supplanted by the increasingly reliable and also free broadcast of radio to a commercial service for businesses placed in waiting rooms, hotel lobbies, and of course, elevators. At the height of efficiency-concerned post-war Taylorism slash Fordism, Muzak was played in all manner of labor situations, with the aim of encouraging worker productivity throughout the day. The service's popularity and saturation soared through the 60s and 70s, especially in America. It was played at the Apollo 11 launch on Air Force One in the 60s and throughout the White House in the 70s. But its increasing prevalence, and especially that in the workplace, was not without some controversy. At one point, it was linked to mind control techniques, which, I mean, that's rather Alex Jones-level alarmist terms to put it in. Ladies and gentlemen, the, the snake people and Hillary Clinton are using hold music to implant snake person eggs inside your brain. But not entirely wrong? I mean, you know, except for the snake people eggs. It's mind control in the same way that, like, advertising is mind control. A string of financial whoopsies and a growing association with banal, soulless, artless, drivel, troubled Muzak through the end of the 20th century. At one point, rock superstar and notorious head Ted Nugent claimed that he would buy the company to simply shut it down. But that didn't happen, and in 2011, Muzak was purchased by Mood Media, quote, an international in-store provider of music, digital signage, hold music, on-hold messaging, sent, integrated audio-slash-video, and interactive mobile marketing solutions. Mood retired the Muzak brand in 2013, but they do continue to use Muzak's content and technology to provide, quote, piped-in music that spans many genres, including, according to their website, Classy classical, so suave jazz, and very hip hop. So, there are some clear affinities between music and hold music as services slash technologies. They're both transmission technologies, content delivery mechanisms, and they're concerned with the profitability of an often captive audience. The significant difference between the two, considering Muzak from this point forward as a generic media object and not a specific retired brand, is their primary target dimension. Muzak fills space. Music on hold fills time. Muzak is played in physical places, waiting rooms, elevators, factory floors. More recent iterations are designed for restaurants and a vast array of retail locations. The point of Muzak's presence in these locations isn't to fill the time of activity, but it's space. One of Muzak's old slogans was even, Muzak fills the deadly silences. It dispels the awkwardness of a silent room and, in many situations, entrains the bodies occupying that room, getting them to act at the speed most advantageous for the business at hand. This is true of the Fordist factory floor, as it is the Chipotle, the White House, or the chill hotel lobby bar. Where Muzak fills space, music on hold fills time. 
Hold music takes as its target the moments between being placed in telephone purgatory and being released. It is unconcerned with space. It is wherever its listener is. And, I mean, who knows where that may be. But it's also sort of nowhere. It's designed to occupy the single point distance between caller and callee, providing a soundtrack to only ever the same activity. Waiting. Music on hold is not an underscore, it's a distraction from the amount of time that has passed. Time which hold music ideally destroys. Music on hold attempts to pull us out of time, not making us more efficient or more focused, not situating us in a place, but quite the opposite, unfocusing us and ideally leaving us adrift and yet not bored entertained but not enthralled. How much this dimensional distinction is reflected in the content of the music, well, it's kind of hard to say. We could lean on Marshall McLuhan's claim that the medium is the message, that the significance of the content is largely determined by the method of its transmission. Does Muzak become music on hold when played over a phone? Maybe. McLuhan's claim may be more true here than it is in a lot of other places. Any music played on hold becomes hold music. Even, we'll eventually see, the Beatles. Whereas only a very specific type of music would be readily identified as Muzak. So then, I mean, this opens up a whole wide world of questions. Like, when anything can be music on hold... How do you decide what to use for your hold music? In the next act, the hold music research industrial complex, and why Sweet Charity may actually have been a terrible hold music choice, even though people seem to like it. music works really well, it turns out. One study from the late 90s suggests that people will wait on the phone up to 30% longer if they have something to listen to. The big problem, basically, is that the cost of hanging up on a customer service call can be incredibly low. Sometimes it's lower than staying on the line. So the risk of attrition is high. And when someone hangs up, well, I mean, who knows? That could be it. The places that sell music on hold services estimate that nearly 80% of customers say that they would switch to a competitor after poor call center experiences, including long wait times. And 60% of those people will actually follow through on that threat. But, um, I mean, these figures are from the companies who profit from the fear of customer hangups. So just a big old grain of salt with that one. Or let's look at this another way. What if someone 
has to be on hold. They need some essential service from the organization that they're calling, and the cost of hanging up is incredibly high. You don't want to subject that person to some soundtrack that they're going to hate. That's going to make everyone's experience worse. So, okay, what do you do? How do you keep people who might hang up hanging on? And how do you keep people who can't hang up happy? At base, Music on Hold has one job. To make you disassociate, basically. Make it so you become loosed from your sense of time and feel comforted in an ever-expanding present. Like the formerly accused Muzak, it is not, not a form of mind control? Snake person eggs. Hold Music uses facets of human psychology to mess with your sense of duration and to keep you on the line. Huey et al. in a 1997 paper for the Journal of Retailing talk about this happening at the intersection of cognition and affect. We're going to cover cognition in the next act. Right now we're going to talk about affect. And that's impacted, it seems, by two factors. The hold music's likability and its fit. Is the music good? And does it jive with your waiting situation? Probably this seems like a simple puzzle. Just license some Beatles songs or like, I don't know, Michael Jackson, Earth, Wind & Fire, the go-to picks at any karaoke night. And just like karaoke night, make sure that you don't pick any sad, slow songs because you don't want people bummed out and feeling like time has halted. Well, it's not that simple, it turns out. People don't like the music that they like in the right way when they're on hold. There's something about music that we both know and enjoy that slows the passage of time. North and Hargreaves in 1999 figured out that while people said that they enjoyed listening to the Beatles while on hold, they were able to get basically a whole minute more of their time with pan flute covers of the Beatles. Something pleasant and familiar-ish, but not well known. Not something you'd really say, oh man, I love this song, too. You can also overcorrect for unlikability. Another study found that people judged atonal music to last longer than, quote, more pleasing music, even if clips were the same length. I couldn't find any research into what causes time to pass more slowly, music that you absolutely love or music that you absolutely hate, but it seems they are equally ill-suited for keeping people on the line. And just a brief digression here, you may know of the Cisco hold music, which will just... Turn that on. Here we go. It sounds like this. Uh, it comes pre-installed, from what I understand, on Cisco phone systems. This, along with a few other notable pieces of hold music, like the guy with the acoustic guitar who sings about being on hold, that's Alex Cornell. He wrote that song for Uber Conference. Um, and these songs have become popular as hold music first. I'm not sure if anyone has looked into the changing patience people have with these pieces as they're exposed to them again and again and again, but, I mean, there are a couple 10-hour versions of the Cisco music on YouTube, at least. Oh, and one of the Cisco engineers estimates that um, by number of times listened per day, there is a chance that this is the most heard song ever. So hold music has to be likable, but not too likable. And it has to fit, meaning jive well with the weight situation. 
One oft-cited 1993 study published in the Journal of Music Therapy and conducted by Liesl Vivoni Ramos compared hold times as an effect of hold music genre on a protective services abuse hotline in Florida. Which, I mean, it does sound like a risky situation to mount a study on how soon people hang up the phone, but Ramos does mention that the call center was invested in the results and worked with her to find the most ethical plan of action for gathering them. Over five weeks, callers were played five different genres of music, one per week. Quote, classical, popular, music arranged for relaxation, country, and jazz. Operators found that the highest number of disconnections came when playing relaxation music. Described as the Pachelbel canon with the sounds of the ocean surf, the hypothesis here was that this music is a bad fit because callers are in stressful, high-stakes situations, and they don't want it implied that they need to just calm down. Pop music was the second worst because it seemingly trivialized the situation. That selection included songs by Paula Abdul, Rod Stewart, Wilson Phillips, and Michael Bolton. That's what I call music 90s edition, basically. Callers held the longest and had the best response to contemporary jazz, which was mostly instrumental. Miles Davis, Weather Report, and Antonio Carlos Jobim, among others. Second best for keeping people on the line was country music. Specifically, The Judds, Born to be Blue, Calling in the Wind, Love Can Build a Bridge, Are the Roses Not Blooming, and others. Ramos doesn't discuss fit as such in her paper, but she does conclude that the most successful hold music doesn't, quote, seem to evoke strong feelings from the callers. In this case, fit means invisible, non-offensive, but not offensively non-offensive. Music, not music you might say. Her results, she points out, are likely dependent upon region and era, though. Jazz and country music, we can infer, might be a less good fit outside of Florida in 1993. But then and there, they work. So really, likability, which we've treated as separate from fit, may be another side of the same coin. Something will fit if it's thought to be normal or expected. As long as it's not commercial, maybe? Enjoyable is fine, but fit may suffer if the selection is thought to be popular. It should be mundane. One standard unit of music. Nothing more, nothing less. This makes me think Sweet Charity's likability was maybe too high then? Especially given the folks calling in who evidence would suggest knew and enjoyed the song. The best stuff, the material most suited to getting people to forget how much time is passing, seems to be that which inspires as little a reaction as possible, that exists within the ultimate aesthetic liminal space of the people who happen to be calling you. Might a pan flute cover of Sweet Charity been better if we needed someone to stay on hold for 15 minutes while we figured out how many pine boards were left in the wood shop, or if the textile design class had been canceled due to unforeseen scheduling conflicts? Might have been. Might have been. Probably we should have just gone with Animal Collective. Burn? I think? I think burn. Hold music burn on Animal Collective. But okay, why? Why do certain pieces of music make people tolerate larger stretches of wait time? Why is our sense of time so easy to trick? <laughs> Thank you. 
sense of time is a bit of a misnomer. We don't really have a time sense in the way that we have a visual sense or a olfactory sense. There's no single organ that measures the passing of the seconds, but there are a few distributed parts of the human brain that work in concert with other systems to give you a few different and rough capabilities for dealing with time. Our most well-known internal clock is probably the circadian rhythm, which helps humans and plants and animals adjust to Earth's day-night cycle. Some of our clock parts are put in service of performing physical action, helping us judge how long it will take to swing a baseball bat as a pitch approaches or synchronize our sensory inputs so we can experience reality in order and as close to real time as possible. What we're curious about here and in relationship to hold music is... Our sense of how much time has passed from any given point. How is it that you might guess, without looking at a clock, that you've been on hold listening to Rod Stewart for three minutes? And why might Rod Stewart make you guess three when it's been four? There's some work in philosophy, psychology, and neuroscience that all sort of works in concert to explain this. The first question we got to ask is, when we wait, what are we perceiving? There's a lot of disagreement here. Some folks say that duration is not itself directly perceptible, that in order to know time has passed, they say that we draw inferences from things that we can perceive. Other people say that this is complete bunk, that uh, while we may not be able to do it with perfect accuracy, they say duration can be perceived directly. We can feel that seconds are passing because we apprehend their passing as such and not the result of inference or deduction. Just to give two examples, in the 17th century, philosopher John Locke wrote that we experience time thanks to a succession of thoughts in our mind. When we introspect, we behold a progression of mental concepts, and this succession adds up to a duration. But then some other folks were like, hey, wait a minute. In order for a succession of thoughts to add up to a duration, the thoughts themselves have to have a duration, don't they? Otherwise, they'd just be simultaneous and like coming really, really quick, like all in one clump. And we know from our own internal experience that that's not what happens. So, oof, maybe not, my dude. In the 20th century, philosopher Henri Bergson described the human experience of time as dependent upon duration more fundamentally. It is duration itself as a quality of consciousness and not the result of a succession of thoughts that gives us a perception of time. This sort of duration is fundamentally abstract. It isn't measurable or isolatable, which would explain the constant flow of time experience that we have. It just sort of is. Were we unaware of the existence of space and spatial relations, Bergson claims, we would not sort time into moments or instants or slices or whatever. There would simply be duration. C'est tout. But since we do perceive space, we use it as a kind of metaphor for our perceptions of time. Between these two competing concepts of time, and lots of others that we don't have any time to get to, what thinkers seem to agree on is that what we're always experiencing is the present, in one form or another. The past, we only really experience that as memory, or as a kind of image repackaged with the present. The future, sort of by definition, we don't experience that, though sometimes we may anticipate it pretty well. The present moment 
That's the thing that we have direct and defensible apprehension of. But it's imperfect, isn't it? I mean, we've been talking this whole episode about how it can be messed with for fun and profit. Why is that present experience so malleable? One of the founders of psychology and also a philosopher, William James, asked in his landmark work, The Foundations of Psychology, what gives things their presentness? And also, where is it this present? Building on work by E.R. Clay, James describes the specious present, a period of time about 12 seconds long, he estimates, which is, quote, the only fact of our immediate experience. This present is specious because upon our experience of it, it's already in the past. In the present moment, we are always responding to what has already occurred. The practically cognized present, James writes, is no knife edge, but a saddleback with a certain breadth of its own on which we sit perched and from which we look in two directions, into time. This practically cognized present, James suggests, is our model for all forms of the passage of time. It's our paradigmatic moment. Upon our experience of this specious present, we build concepts of what's already occurred, what is yet to come, and the space that intervenes whatever two points in time we may be considering, like say between now and when that Rod Stewart song began a few minutes ago. Our sense of time, like other senses, seems subject to the law of contrast, James wrote. We're always comparing intervals to one another and to our experience of the specious present. These comparisons help us develop a sense of how moments differ from one another in length. James explains that this sense is practiced. It sharpens over time, and as a result of that sharpening, we can get better at estimating how much time has passed, or how long a particular event has lasted. That sense might differ between people, and there are things which can throw it off. New and novel experiences, or traumatic experiences, for instance, seem to slow the passage of time. Things you've done a million times, though, they breeze right by. As one grows older and becomes accustomed to the larger intervals of life, months, seasons, years, they pass disappointingly at an increasing pace. All sorts of things may defeat whatever training we've had sensing time's passage and make the specious present or experiences compared with it seem fuzzy or distorted, shorter or longer than they, quote, really are when measured by a clock. There's some science, some of it recent, very recent, that corroborates a bit of this. Some brain parts do reliably mark out intervals of time. Hippocampal time cells, quote, form a domino-like chain signal that tracks time spans up to 10 seconds precisely. Not quite the 12 seconds of the specious present, but hey, I'll take it. But okay, we are getting a little ahead of ourselves. Because some brain signals count out this time, that doesn't mean that they contribute to our experience of time. There's a gap, in other words. These things do their thing, but that thing doesn't necessarily mean that they help us know things. How is this information encoded in experience, if at all? How do we get from ticking time cells to the proposed specious present? 
Albert Tsao et al. at NTNU's Kavli Institute for Systems Neuroscience think they figured it out. Remember Bergson talking about how if we didn't know about space, we'd experience time as pure duration? Well, there's a chance that he wasn't entirely wrong. It looks like the parts of our brain that deal with time experience lean on some of the parts that deal with space experience. Some, quote, hippocampal neural ensembles organize our memories in time similar to how they organize locations in space. But at least as far as subjective experience goes, our sense of space feels rigid, doesn't it? Or, or if not rigid, it's, it feels more concrete than our sense of time. Tsao et al. wanted to figure out what about these cells give time its timey-wiminess. The cells they looked at in the lateral entorhinal cortex are sort of all over the place. Previous research had shown that there was no pattern in their activity. They thought, well, but wait, time is regular. Shouldn't the things that measure it also be regular? Turns out, no. The unique and often seemingly random patterns of these cells help encode unique memory experiences. And along with those memories a sense of when they occurred, and how long they last. The behavior of the cells change in response to the activities of the subject. The signal in the time-coding network, Rita Nielsen explains, can take on many forms depending upon the experience. Meaning that, as one of the researchers puts it, by changing the content of your experience, you can actually change the way you perceive time. So, I mean... This seems to jive pretty well with all the hold music research that we've been talking about. We have a cognitive basis for the reason different music impacts us differently. All we're missing now is an explanation of why certain pieces of music work as well as they do. Why pan flute covers of Beatles songs? Why the Judds, but not Michael Bolton? If not Sweet Charity, then what? Here, we can turn to philosopher and composer Jonathan D. Kramer and his 1988 book, The Time of Music, which is great if this sort of thing interests you. Kramer talks about the information processing model of time perception as it relates to music. The more harmonically or melodically or timbrally complex a piece of music is, and the more non-temporal information in the stimulus, Kramer writes, the more our sense of duration gets muddied. There's a lot to think about, and the rhythm of the piece on a micro or macro level doesn't indicate the passage of time too clearly. We get kind of overloaded, and it can feel like lots of time has passed, even if it hasn't. This explains why, say, Brian Fernyhoe probably isn't great hold music. And weirdly, it's for the same reason that Phil Niblock isn't great hold music. Both of these selections, though they differ greatly in character, give us lots of information to process. There's a lot to think about. They are dense. 
Kramer, for the record, though, would describe Niblock's work as existing in vertical time, which is fascinating, but has little to do with hold music. So I'm going to record a passage about that for patrons with access to episode extras. You can head to patreon.com forward slash reasonably sound to check that out if you're interested. If it's a piece of music that's harmonically rather simple with a prominent and regular meter, we will, quote, attend to timing more and our sense of duration will more closely resemble clock time, Kramer writes. But there are tempering forces at work here, like a familiar piece of music will seem to pass more quickly because you have to process less information. And we should say, we're getting into the realm of speculation here, since this specific set of studies hasn't been done, but like both James and Cao et al. suggest, perhaps because your brain need not process a unique experience, it can fall into a familiar pattern while listening to familiar music. A fair amount of music relies heavily on expectation and its confirmation or denial, so when you know what to expect, it's like you're traveling forward in time, compressing the duration of experience because each musical item which sets up an expectation conjures its result perhaps immediately in your memory. You can process the information of the music that you're listening to at your own, and probably quicker than real time, pace. It's a bit counterintuitive, but we might understand how this leads to a kind of impatience. Like being told a story you've heard before, you already know where this is going. And so time extends while it also compresses. Your experience of time may pass more quickly than the first time you had to process this new information, but it may also feel like wasted time. Get to the point time. This experience may even resemble the critical position on Locke's theory of duration. All of the ideas for the next several minutes arrive at once in a lump, and we're then left to wait out their passage in experience. Maybe it's not an agonizing process, but neither is it an ideal one for maximizing patience and therefore wait times. So this could be why Pan Flute Beatles wins out over Beatles proper. It's familiar, but not. Harmonically non-complex, and we can imagine with a clear meter. It's a new experience, new information, but not so new as to be challenging. And this is perhaps why the Judds or Miles Davis work better than Michael Bolton or Paula Abdul. They are known, but not, in that milieu at least, played out. They're comforting, but not patronizing. A new enough experience that your brain has to shift into a different gear, but not so new, or so traumatic, the time slows to a halt. In a way, I think Muzak can get away with its stereotypical banality because it doesn't demand your attention. It is patronizing in a literal sense, in that it is played by some authority under false pretenses of care or service, but at least it isn't meant to be a subject of your focus. But hold music, hold music does demand some amount of focus. In its ideal instances, and there are many non-ideal instances, to maintain that focus, and also apologize for its requirement, Hold music balances precariously at the center of several aesthetic concerns, asking your brain to forget itself and forget time for just two more minutes until an operator is available. Your call is important to us. Please stay on the line. An operator will be with you momentarily. Your call is important to us. 
Your call is important to us. Please stay on the line. An operator will be with you momentarily. Your call is important to us. My name is Mike Rugnetta, and this podcast has been Reasonably Sound. You can find Reasonably Sound on Twitter and Instagram at ReasonablySND and me at Mike Rugnetta. If you want to support the show, you can do so per episode at patreon.com forward slash reasonably sound. If you want to support me in all my internet endeavors, including but not limited to reasonably sound, you can do that per month on drip at d.rip forward slash micrognetta. Reasonably sound also has snazzy as heck t-shirts for sale at Cotton Bureau. Links to all of these things in the show notes and at reasonablysound.com. But of course, however you can help out, it is very much appreciated. Write a review on iTunes, share the show on social media, tell your friends about it, or even just drop me a line with tips, reactions, episode ideas. It is all appreciated and amazing. Super duper thanks to all of Reasonably Sound's patrons, subscribers, supporters, and t-shirt wearers, with extra special thanks to Harry Brisson, Johnny C., and Richard Hansen. If this is your first episode as a Loud Hailer patron, you'll hear your name next episode because of how Patreon clears pledges. Sorry for the confusion, but I promise I didn't forget you. Reasonably Sound's theme music is by Will Stratton. Its visual design is by Tita Tepp. Your Alex Jones impersonator was Stephen Bruckert, creator and host of the Friends Talkin' Politics podcast, in which we reveal our ignorance. Available wherever you podcast. But I have to break in here now and override social justice warrior Michael Rugnetta. This is too important. This is too important to hold back. You hear that? You hear that paper? That is a CIA report that has been leaked to me by one of my whistleblowers on the inside. He's one of my guys. And what this memo says is going to change your entire life.